from the High Center Studios of Messiah College, where we hope to foster dialogue over division here in Grantham, Pennsylvania. This is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome everyone to episode 49 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. So, Drew, I want to start with this today. Last night, I spent some time with a group of very smart first-year honors students at a Penn State University campus out in western Pennsylvania. And we had dinner together, and I asked them about, you know, what are you passionate about? And how might your passions about the world translate into your political convictions or even just your general participation in a democratic society? Uh, I found it to be a really, really fascinating conversation. I wish I had more conversations like this with students at Messiah. Most of them, almost all of them, their number one anxiety about the world right now was rising college tuition costs and how they would pay back their student loans. Uh, I see Abigail, our uh, producer, a senior communications major back there, nodding her head in agreement, right? Others said they were too tired to think about anything other than their studies, right? It was kind of like, why think about politics? I don't have time for this, right? I'm busy with holding down a part-time job and worrying about my studies. A few others lamented the division and discord in public discourse And they just completely felt overwhelmed by so many opinions and arguments that are out there in the media and social media today that they didn't even know how to make sense of it all or where even to begin to make any kind of meaningful change. So I I left. It was a very hopeful conversation about the future and the world in which the previous generations, in other words, us, Uh, me, I'll say, have kind of left for these students. Like what kind of, you know, I put the blame on my generation, not theirs, right? What kind of world are we, are we giving to these young people? And, and could we have done better? Now, you know, I spend a lot of time with Messiah college students. You do too, Drew. Um, What's your take? I mean, here at Messiah, you know, this was a big public university here. We're a sort of little church related liberal arts college, um, same age kind of students. I mean, any any thoughts about this? I had a, a, an interesting conversation not too long ago. I was uh, invited by a former student who now works for the Student Activities Board to sit on a panel commenting on issues of political correctness, especially on campus and um, in classrooms. Mm-hmm. The panel was put together in response to like this kind of growing noise of, of commentators saying something along the lines of... Uh, quote-unquote, political correctness is destroying college campuses and turning students into snowflakes or whatever. Yeah. So among other things, I pointed out that uh, I don't actually ask for any more, quote-unquote, political correctness in my classroom than that which is already stated as official policy by the Messiah Handbook. So in many ways, this is a moot conversation. Um, And I think think sometimes that anxiety and, and that kind of commentary is designed to distract us but I will say that I think that the panel demonstrates that these tensions that you mentioned are growing on our campus. But um, that being said, I also do think there are some unique things um, about Messiah in particular. I've found that the vast majority of my students are uh, deeply empathetic yeah. in ways that I have not seen replicated in other classrooms where I have taught. 
But then again, my teaching here has been almost entirely focused in classrooms dedicated to indigenous studies. So uh, I could see how my students may have a bit of built-in self-selection. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm getting students who are already interested in having these conversations. Yeah, sure. And, and you know, the thing that struck me about this group last night was they were all sort of very smart kids. They were, you know, all got these scholarships, these honor scholarships. And um, the professor that I was with there, the history professor who had invited me to come out there and lecture, was trying to sort of prompt them and, you know, get them thinking about, you know, how are you going to participate to make our democracy better? You know, what are you going to do? And, you know, these were certainly thoughtful kids who could come up with legitimate answers if put on the spot. In fact, the professor actually forced them to do this. He went around and asked them to all say something. And they all came up with very thoughtful answers. But um, the sense of being tired, the sense of being confused, the sense of um, just so much information to process, and then, you know, some of the anxieties of whether it be the economy, uh, the high tuition costs, you know, all of these things were pressing. Um, Many of these young people I met last night live in the world that their parents, as I just mentioned, that their parents and their grandparents' generation has made for them. Uh, It's hard to escape history, even recent history. And these students, whether they like it or not, are dealing with the division, discord, the societal fracture, the uncertainty uh, that has been a hallmark of American political and cultural life really since the 1970s. So we're going to explore that today. Um, We're going to explore the last 45 years of American political and cultural history today with Julian Zelizer. Uh, Some of you may have seen him on CNN. He's the co-author of a brand new book titled Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974, a regular contributor to CNN, and, you know, one of our foremost public intellectuals, uh, especially when it comes to the area of politics. We should also add Zelizer has co-authored this book with a uh, previous Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast guest, Kevin Cruz. Cruz was on episode 34 to talk about his use of Twitter to advance historical knowledge. And it remains one of our most popular episodes. And we can kind of see how there's a little bit of a synergy here between two very active public intellectuals, also both uh, from the same institution at Princeton. That's right. Well, I have no doubt that our episode today with Julian Zelizer, again, historian, public intellectual, CNN contributor, is going to draw a, a good audience as well. Uh, but before we get to our conversation with Julie and Drew, tell us how our listeners can connect with the podcast. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. We also want to welcome our new gold sponsor, Richard Green. Again, it's the support of people like Richard that keep the lights on and the tape spinning. I also want to add some additional comments today regarding our long-standing sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. As I'm sure we've all heard, there's a bit of a scandal surrounding college admissions these days, and the perpetrator of that particular fraud advertised himself as a college consultant. So I wanted to point out that Jennings College Consulting is a very different operation. Dr. Jennings focuses on helping students navigate the complicated process of college admissions. Any parent or recent college student knows that it is extremely challenging. This is a far cry from the rigging of the system that was taking place during the scandal. Additionally, Dr. Jennings' services are not designed 
for elite students alone, but instead she seeks ways to help every student, regardless of their economic or academic situation, to find the college that fits them best. If you are seeking a college consultant, make sure that you are seeking out a certified educational planner. The American Institute of Certified Educational Planners ensures that consultants like Dr. Jennings are working ethically in the best interest of the student. As listeners may know, I'm a bit biased towards Jennings College Consulting as Dr. Jennings is not only our sponsor, but also my mom. And also, since we're recording this on March 27th, happy birthday, Mom. Happy birthday. We are also sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. History is a critical but often overlooked part of nurturing and developing vital communities. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. Over his 20-year career in nonprofits in the public sector, Bob Beatty has honed proven strategies to engage communities deeply in the work of history organizations and museums. Contact Bob at lindhurstgroup.org, that's L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T group.org, to learn how the Lindhurst Group can help you help make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. And again, the best way to get this podcast into more earbuds is to tell a friend. Make the recommendation. Maybe you're sitting next to someone on the bus every day on your way to work, and you say, hey, do you like history and politics? Do you like (laughs) contemporary life? You should listen to this podcast. In all seriousness, though, word of mouth is the best way to get the podcast out to new listeners. And if you want to talk to us, connect with us on social media, follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And if you can, please give us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. Before we get to Julian Zelizer, give some commentary for us, John. On July 15, 1979, President Jimmy Carter went before the nation in the midst of an economic recession and delivered what he called his crisis of confidence speech. It remains one of my favorite presidential addresses. Carter's political opponents have described it negatively as his malaise speech. But I have always found it to be a profound reflection on human nature, political virtue, and the common good that reminds me of the ideas of some of our founding fathers. Carter tapped into a long-forgotten American tradition of community and sacrifice that has been sadly overwhelmed by individualism and the pursuit of liberty without social obligation. Americans did not want Carter's message of civic responsibility in July of 1979. They preferred the freedom and self-interest of Ronald Reagan's Morning in America. Carter spoke truth on that July evening in 1979, but Americans did not want to hear it. A year and a half later, he would be gone riding into the sunset of a very productive post-presidential career. I encourage you to watch Carter's speech on YouTube. He showed empathy with the American people suffering under economic hardship even using the phrase, I feel your pain, well before Bill Clinton popularized it. The speech is deeply honest and humble. Carter affirms some of the criticism of his presidency up to this point. In this sense, it is quite refreshing. Carter uses most of his speech to call attention to a loss of national purpose, a crisis of confidence in American ideals that pose a fundamental threat to American democracy. It is a forward-looking message of hope and progress. Carter speaks with conviction, 
often raising his fist at times to strengthen his points. Carter says that self-indulgence, consumption, and materialism undermine citizenship. According to historian Kevin Matson, the foremost historian on the so-called Malaise speech, these ideas come directly from historian and cultural critic Christopher Lash and his best-selling book, The Culture of Narcissism. Lash was with Carter at Camp David, along with leaders from other sectors of American society, a week or so before he delivered the speech. The president points to the many ways the country has gone astray, Vietnam, Watergate, and economic dependence on Middle East oil. He offers honest answers, not easy answers. He warns us about the path of self-interest and fragmentation. This is what America would eventually get with Reagan, as our former guest Daniel T. Rogers showed us in his award-winning book, The Age of Fracture. Carter proposed a national conversation on energy policy. He hoped that this might be a way of bringing a divided nation together. This seems more relevant than ever today. Green New Deal aside, a green solution to our energy crisis would create jobs and strengthen the economy. Interestingly enough, I might add, Carter also champions coal and oil pipelines. Remember, this is the 1970s. Carter calls for a strengthening of public transportation and local acts of conservation. This kind of self-sacrifice, he says, is an act of patriotism. Again, this kind of virtue, political virtue, is a very American idea. It goes all the way back to the non-importation agreements in the run-up to the American Revolution, a time when the refusal to drink tea or buy British goods was seen as a similar act of patriotism. No president could ever get away with such a speech today. Reagan has spoiled us. In fact, Carter didn't get away with it either. But sometimes the best medicine is the hardest to swallow. confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social, 
and the political fabric of America. The confidence that we have always had as a people is not simply some romantic dream or a proverb in a dusty book that we read just on the 4th of July. It is the idea which founded our nation that has guided our development as a people. Confidence in the future. I supported everything else. Public institutions, a private enterprise, our own families, and the very Constitution of the United States. Confidence has defined our course and has served as a link between generations. We've always believed in something called progress. We've always had faith that the days of our children would be better than our own. Our people are losing that faith. Not only in government itself, but in the ability as citizens to serve as the ultimate rulers and shapers of our democracy. As a people, we know our past and we are proud of it. Our progress has been part of the living history of America, even the world. We always believed that we were part of a great movement of humanity itself called democracy, involved in the search for freedom. And that belief has always strengthened us in our purpose. But just as we're losing our confidence in the future, we're also beginning to close the door on our past. Julian E. Zelizer has been one of the pioneers in the revival of American political history. He's the author of several books, including On Capitol Hill, The Struggle to Reform Congress and Its Consequences, 1948 to 2000, Arsenal of Democracy, The Politics of National Security from World War II to the War on Terrorism, Conservatives in Power, The Reagan Years, 1981 to 1989, and The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. He has edited 10 books on American political history, with subjects ranging from politics and the media to the presidency of George W. Bush. In addition to his scholarly articles and book chapters, Zelizer is a frequent commentator in the international and national media on political history and contemporary politics. He has published over 700 op-eds, including his weekly column on CNN.com. He's a regular news commentator on radio, television, and in print. He has received fellowships from the Brookings Institute, the Guggenheim Foundation, Russell Sage Foundation, and New America. His most recent book, co-authored with his Princeton colleague Kevin Cruz, is Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. Our guest today is Julian Zelizer, co-author of a brand new book along with Kevin Cruz, his colleague at Princeton University in the History Department. The title of the book is Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. Julian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, this is a very recent history of America, right? Um, I just want to ask you a sort of a methodological question to start. And I know you've written a lot of sort of contemporary history, 
But maybe for those of you who aren't familiar with your work or maybe are, are curious about how a historian works in such a contemporary time period, how do you write about these politically charged topics that are really still very much in the memory of a, a lot of your audience? I mean, how do you navigate that as a historian, a sort of political commentator, right? I mean, are there sort of rules to doing that or you have any kind of strategies that work well? Well, they're two different challenges. So for the books I've written over my career, many of which deal with the period from the 60s right through today, I just really try to think of the subject and the material as I would if I was writing about the 1930s or I was writing about the 19th century to get away from some of just the figures who mattered and understand, you know, what are the bigger institutions that are shaping American politics? What are the bigger questions that influence conversations, you know, over different presidencies. I try to bring those same tools to the table. And generally, I think I've I've found a way to do that and, and talk about periods, even the 80s and 90s, uh, as history, as I would for a period uh, many decades ago. And this is always a challenge uh, for the people who try to take the first cut of history. But I really love doing it. And in the media, I could talk about it's a whole whole different ballgame um, with a different set of challenges, but equally exciting for me. Yeah, I should add that uh, Julian is a regular uh, contributor on CNN. Uh, I often see you on Saturday afternoons. Is that fair? I mean, is that your main time slot? You're with, uh, um, I'm trying to remember, Fred. Uh, yeah, Whitfield. Whitfield. I do, <laughs> I, do a, I do a lot of the weekend shows, both okay. Saturdays and Sundays, and then I do some of the morning shows during the week. I think I tweeted out, Drew, one day. I saw him, like, I was in a hotel, and it was like 6 a.m., and he was hot. I was That's like, fun. this guy never sleeps, right? That is true. I'm an early <laughs> riser. Right. Now, let's get to fault lines here in the book. Yep. If if I read you correctly, it seems that much of the chapters that you and Kevin write about the 70s, and maybe maybe I would love to, we don't have time for this, but I'd love to take a guessing game to see which ones you wrote and which ones Kevin wrote. I kind of have some guesses. But anyway, you guys together, right, are sort of really making a case in the 70s. We see for the first time uh, this kind of identity politics, uh, maybe the birth of this identity politics. What was it about this decade uh, that led, you know, African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, you know, white ethnic communities, uh, feminist community, gay community, even even white evangelicals uh, to begin to kind of uh, engage in this kind of identity politics, which was quite different from kind of a consensus view of politics that was pretty dominant in the 1950s and really into the you know, better part of the 1960s. I mean, is that fair to say that the 70s is really the birth of this kind of identity politics in a kind of clear and deliberate kind of way? Well, I think it is a pronounced part of the decade. And you can think of it as identity politics, uh, or you can think of it as social rights politics, where I think you're living in the shadow of the civil rights movement, uh, which really opened up these questions in terms of achieving justice, not broadly across only all of the middle class, but looking at different challenges and different issues that different social groups faced. Um, that was that was part of the argument at, uh, of civil rights. There wasn't just one answer right. that would work everywhere. And, and that's part of how you see the feminist movement, which emerges in the 60s and 70s, saying, hey, these these social rights issues are very pertinent to the uh, experience of women as well. But there's different issues that as a feminist, you'll have to deal with that are different. And so I think different groups start to pick up on that logic and it kind of flowers 
Uh, and there's also something of a backlash where right. uh, some of this is identity politics against the idea of identity politics. Yeah, yeah. Is there something unique about like the 70s, though, sort of coming out of the, the tumultuous decade, if you will, of the 60s or the latter half of the 60s that makes the culture sort of ripe for this kind of stuff in the 70s? Well, certainly the falling out of the economy after two decades of really incredible growth where unemployment was low, inflation was low. People were really feeling that they could be mobile and their children would be mobile. In the 70s, this just falls right through the bottom and uh, added to inflation, high unemployment, which was called stagflation. We have an energy crisis with gas lines at different points in the decade. And I think that kind of economic insecurity really opened up all these political questions combined with the trauma of both Vietnam and Watergate. Sure, sure. I wish there's so much in this book we could cover. So we're, we're kind of jumping around here, trying to move through this time period that you and Kevin cover. Uh, let's fast forward into the 80s, right? Let's talk a little bit about Morning in America, right? This famous uh, ad campaign of Ronald Reagan. Um, if I'm reading your book correctly, and you know this is sort of how any legitimate historian handles this time period, but your book cuts through a lot of the nostalgia uh, surrounding Ronald Reagan, especially nostalgia that comes from the right. Uh, and it really presents a picture, I think, of the Reagan era as one defined, uh, as you know, by, by actually a strong liberal Democrat resistance. Uh, it's a period of sort of greed and self-interest, uh, you know, a la kind of uh, Wall Street, the movie, right? Greed is good. You know, economic insecurity for many people. You know, we don't really think about this as a decade of prosperity. So can you elaborate a bit on this? And in a nutshell, give us a clearer or more historically accurate portrayal of Reagan's America than, say, the right may want to celebrate. Yeah, the 80s was really, uh, it was fraught, it was tense, uh, it was bitterly partisan, Yeah, and there were many problems that Morning in America didn't capture. Morning in America was a television ad to promote a president, not a clean reflection of what was going on in the country. So part of what we talk about is in the 80s, even with Reagan's historic victory and even with this new conservative movement uh, coming to Washington, liberalism remained alive and well. Liberal organizations like the anti-war movement were very powerful force in American politics and liberal policies like Social Security or Medicare still had immense support throughout the country, even as people were watching Reagan Uh, redefine public debate. And we also try to get at, yes, the underside of mourning in America, whether it was uh, increasing economic inequality that we start to see in the 1980s right through this time, or really bitter partisan divisions over what Reagan's presidency symbolized and meant to the country. This was all very much part of 1980s America. And you have to contextualize the nostalgia which was in part a selling point of the decade. You know, changes in technology are an important part of of this book, too. So how did changes in media and technology reshape American life in the 1980s? That's a big part of our whole book. And I think it's it's one of those issues that kept getting bigger as we were writing the chapters. And so one place you see the effect very easily is in in communications and the news media. And part of our story of the transformation of the media from the Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein era to the current Twitter uh, era isn't simply that the news became more partisan and objectivity reporting 
fell away, but it was simply the speed of news and how fast news comes out. And it was also the loss of filters and editorial mechanisms that could even control what is in the news as the internet and social media develop. So that's a very important part. A second issue I'd say is the fragmentation of America is in part because of technology. And we trace the personal computer as this perfect mechanism that you can see that gradually drew people out of common spaces, even though we talk about the internet that way, uh, to the point of the iPhone where the segmentation of people is in part driven by the technology we depend on. Yeah, excellent. And then again, like I said, you return to these themes throughout the the rest of the book, especially towards the end of the book. Let's fast forward again, uh, 1990s. So we have the Clinton era. You know, there's a lot we could say about that Clinton presidency. But, you know, I think just as important in some cases to understanding the Clinton presidency as as you and Kevin lay out is this conservative resurgence, right? This Gingrich contract with America, the rise of talk radio, Rush Limbaugh and others. Uh, I think this is around when Fox News starts taking off. And and you make a case that this conservative resurgency really I don't know if redefine is the right word, but really profoundly shapes uh, at least the last four or six years of Clinton's presidency. So so how does the conservative resurgence under Gingrich kind of change? I don't know if it's fair to say change the direction of sort of Bill Clinton's presidency, maybe moving him more towards the center or, you know, more moderate on some things, particularly when it relates to social issues and economic issues. Well, in terms of President Clinton, yes, as he sees the Republican Party not only taking control of Congress in 94 for the right. first time since 54, but moving to the right, both in terms of public policy uh, and also becoming more extreme in the kind of tactics that would be employed. Right. Uh, Gingrich is really a master of legislative procedure and uses it to try to tie up the administration. So Clinton watching this Republican Party is already moving more to the center by 95 and 96. So that's one effect. And the second is in the last part of his presidency, the GOP spends a good deal of its capital trying to impeach the president and the House votes to impeach him. And even though he survives, even though he ends his presidency with strong approval ratings, that impeachment process and the investigations that surround it really consumed uh, a good deal of that second part of his presidency and probably kept him and prevented him from some of the accomplishments he hoped for. How much is Clinton's support of the Defense of Marriage Act uh, part of this kind of uh, catering, if you will, to these kind of conservative values? I think it's it's an important part there and on criminal justice. Right. I think those are the two issues you really see Clinton stake a center that's that's pretty removed from where a lot of the Democratic Party has moved I think it was generally a political decision. Uh, I mean, I do think that's part of the president trying to position himself while on other areas he was still trying to work with liberals, whether with health care uh, or economic policy. Uh, I think that those two social issues were big for his, you know, trying to stake that ground. Right. Again, now let's move to the 2000s here, moving through the time period here of your book. Uh, you argue that the country was actually more divided after the George W. Bush presidency uh, than it was before Bush administration started. I mean, this is uh, obviously a, an important point in light of just how divisive the Clinton era was, right? But we end the kind of Bush legacy with a even perhaps even more divided country. 
Why do you think it was that Bush couldn't use 9-11 to bring, you know, there's this brief moment of kind of national unity and, you know, you know, putting aside differences for sort of national causes. But why do you why do you think he couldn't capitalize more on that and perhaps try to narrow these fault lines that you and Kevin talk about? I mean, is it just the is it just the Iraq war? Is there something more to it? You know, what happens to compassionate conservatism? Is that completely kind of dismantled after 9-11? You can, can't go back to it or what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think part of what we're trying to say, it's not simply each decade gets more partisan, right. but it's that there was the development and strengthening of partisan polarization was a long-term process. It starts in the 70s, and really, you could argue, culminates right now in the era we're in, and, right. and it involved different developments. Some of them were how our institutions worked, so how partisan gerrymandering really gets perfected so you could lock in red or blue districts, the changes in the media that you left uh, the era with a news where uh, a news ecosystem where partisanship was a legitimate form of providing information to the public, all these and other trends, they're gradually building. They are the way that the process works. So even though presidents individually always come in promising to end this, Obama was very determined they can't. Uh, because they're operating in a deeply divided political system that would require reforms, really, to move away from. And even, I mean, the point of the 9-11 is in some ways, even something so horrible and so nationally traumatic, it only brought unity politically for a few weeks. And the parties were right at it again over issues like airport security. So I think that's that's the kind of story where we're stepping back and layering this over different presidencies, different right. crises, these divisions remain very much in place. Yeah, it just strikes me, you know, I don't know if this is even a fair historical statement to make, but it seems like after World War II, right, you have this, you have more than two weeks, right, in the 1950s of, of some kind of consensus, right, whether it be an anti-Cold War consensus or whatever. And I mean, part of what we're arguing as the takeoff of the book is that divisions always is, exist in this country. Certainly the period in the 50s and 60s is very fraught with issues like race relations. Right. But there were institutions that pushed back against that in that era, the strong union movement we right. talk about as a thread through different social groups. Uh, the strong economy itself was creating a bigger and bigger middle class. The parties were each internally divided yeah. between different factions. And even the media still had this really centralized group of networks and newspapers that were a common frame of conversation. So uh, that's why I think in that 40s to early 70s period, even with all the pull, there was still something working against that. Yeah, great, great. I mean, speaking of of Obama trying to come in and and fix this problem, you know, of course, not being able to. What was it about the Obama administration that actually ended up paving the way for Trump? Well, I think first there is a reaction to who he is uh, and and people try to parse out how much is it about him being an African-American president? How much is it about him being a president who did come out of a more progressive part of the Democratic Party? Uh, Part of it is a response to a pretty bold policy agenda in his first year uh, from the health care to the economic stimulus program. Uh, And then part of it is just how it works when you have a president and then you have big midterm elections that leave control of the Congress or part of it in the other party's hands. Uh, The president becomes the, the pivot, the focal point. 
And I think you saw that with Tea Party Republicans. All of this was at work. And the Republican Party really radicalizes. Uh, Continuing the trends I talked about in the 90s, uh, they radicalize in terms of their tactics, their ideas, and what they're willing to say in the news media. And I think that all created a world where President Trump really made perfect sense. Again, our time's just about up here. Let's talk a little bit about Trump. Now, I've seen I've actually seen you write about this in different places, but you know, there's this debate. I don't know if it's much of a debate among historians, right? Historians discuss, you know, well, continuity, right? You know, we've seen this kind of nativism before. We've seen populism before. We've seen kind of authoritarian presidents trying to gain more power, right? Trump is just the latest manifestation of this, right? You've heard that argument. I've actually heard you, though, make the case, too, and in, in, uh, probably more on in your column at CNN, that Trump is also something completely new, right? You know, we sometimes get too caught up with all this continuity, 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 right, that we can't recognize as historians this kind of incredibly different kind of figure we have sitting in the Oval Office right now. Maybe you could parse that out, you know, maybe repeat what you already said, or what's your take on this? I mean, in terms of the continuity and the sort of complete newness of Trump, like someone we've never seen before. Yeah, I think there, there, there are elements where he is picking up on aspects of our political system that have been building and that we've seen elements of in other presidents and just being incredibly more aggressive about doing these things than other presidents. I think certainly... The, the claim that he obstructed justice or tried to stifle the investigation, what was so notable wasn't that other presidents tried to do that as well, but how he just did it in the open, how he eliminated yeah, yeah. any boundaries or fears about using his power through Twitter and intimidation right in front of our eyes. There's other parts of this debate you're talking about where there is continuity, like xenophobia, nativism, all of this we've seen in American politics, but he then creates his own twist by making them part of a 21st century presidency uh, and giving them legitimation at the highest levels of power rather than via some senator or some activist. And I think that is distinct. And then I do believe, finally, the way he uses the media, the unfiltered, uncontrolled conversation he's willing to have with the country is not what we have seen before. He has abandoned any pretense of having to have checks and balances within his own rhetoric. And I think that's going to change the presidency uh, for, for future generations. Yeah, let me let me end with this. Julie. I think you're right about that, by the way, too. But, but let me uh, end with this. Uh, fault lines. Do these faults, these these cracks, these this division do, you know, I know historians can't predict the future. They don't like no one can, but they don't like to predict the future. Right. But you're but you're operating in this kind of different space in a more sort of commentary and history. Do you have any solutions? Do you have any suggestions? You know, does the fault lines just continue to grow? What does it take? Is it possible to kind of solve these problems? I'm sure you've been asked that before, but I'd love to hear your take. Yeah, I mean, I think we are living in this world for a while, and I don't foresee some period where uh, we figure out ways to come together or where the very basic mechanisms that divide us politically and economically all of a sudden are dismantled. But if there's going to be any kind of improvement, it's the same thing that happened after the Watergate era or in the progressive era. You need to find space to talk about 
real institutional reforms and not yeah. just personality shifts, whether it's let's shift to a new system in terms of creating districts, which is less partisan and, and removed from elected officials, to serious conversations in, in organizations that are part of the news media about what kind of offerings are going to be important in the next few years, to citizens kind of looking at the local level for new political spaces to create different kinds of conversations. It's reform that's necessary. That's the only way in which some of this is ameliorated. Otherwise, our trajectory definitely will get worse in the next decade. You're not leaving us with much hope here, Julian. <laughs> anyway, we've been talking with uh, Julian Zelizer, uh, a great historian of modern American politics at Princeton University, a contributor to CNN. His new book, along with one of our previous guests on this show, he co-wrote it with, Kevin Cruz, is called Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. Julian, if people want to kind of know more about you, look up something about your work, uh, do you have a website or someplace they can go? Yeah, website, www.julianzelizer.com, and, and more my uh, Twitter feed now, which is just at Julian Zelizer. You can see my stuff regularly. And catch him on the weekends and early mornings on CNN. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It must be really difficult to write this history of, of, of all this contemporary uh, stuff. I mean, as I read through the book, I kind of was remembering where I was at these particular mm -hmm. moments as Zelizer is writing. And, you know, I think although he would say, right, you know, he tries to treat this subject as if he were writing about the 19th century. I'm not really quite sure that it's it's that easy to do when when the consequences of a lot of the, the things he's writing about still kind of are in the news and continue to create the kind of discord in society that he and Kevin write about. Yeah, hearing historians of that period really, to be frank, stresses me out. You know, I mean, we're <laughs> both we're both early Americanists, and 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 I myself find a sort of reassurance in the fact that if at the end of my project I don't have the primary source, that it probably just doesn't exist. Right, that you know, right. that, like like I can be confident that I have uncovered what I can and should uncover in the process of my research. But you know, when you're working in such a modern time period as Zelizer and Cruz are. You really just have to convince yourself that you're done, even yeah. though you know yeah. you're really not. You know, yeah, there's a kind of fine ways. line, too, I think, between – I think maybe Zalicer would agree with this. There's a fine line between journalism and, and history, and I like how he put it as sort of the – what do you say? The first draft uh, of this kind of history. I don't know if the rumor is true. I actually heard – maybe I shouldn't be engaging in rumors here on the podcast, but I, I read somewhere that uh, he's now working on a biography of Newt Gingrich. Which, uh, which would be really, really kind of fascinating to read. Um, but I'm just pleased that he was able to take some time to chat with us about the new book, get out there and get a copy of Fault Lines. This kind of thoughtful political commentary, uh, deeply rooted in reflections on the past, I think we need more of this. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm so pleased that there are people like Julian Zelizer on CNN um, who are bringing some historical uh, reflection on this crazy political world that we live in. How do you think our good buddy Bob Beatty might work with Julian Zelizer's book? Well, I mean, I think it, we're definitely seeing here the, the relevancy of history for understanding political institutions. And so many museums and public histories is actually done at a 
local political level, right? Yeah. You know, since since our last recording, for example, we we actually just got the uh, lieutenant governor of of Pennsylvania to sign on as a co-chair of the Look Up Look Out campaign yeah. with 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 Digital Harrisburg Initiative. So, obviously working with these kinds of local political institutions is very important to public history work. But you're also, as as Zelizer is here in the interview, you're speaking a little bit of truth to power. So I, I think it's definitely worthwhile to consult with, with someone who is an expert in this public history field, uh, especially when you're talking about issues of politics where, you know, frankly, the stakes are pretty high. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to episode 48 in which Drew talks a little bit about this project he's working on in Harrisburg. Uh, this is the kind of thing at the intersection of kind of contemporary history, relatively contemporary history, uh, politics and public history, mm-hmm. commemoration, memory. You know, so if you have any needs in those areas, you know, definitely hit up Bob Beatty at uh, the Lindhurst Group, uh, lindhurstgroup.org, and he can help you with all of your needs on that front. Well, I think that's a wrap, Drew. I think it's a wrap. Uh, thanks for listening. We got some great guests still coming here as we close out season five. So stay tuned. Uh, and in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. Let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Julian Zelizer. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling, and your host, as always, is John Fia. <laughs>